Hello, my name is Zoltan Chigesh, and this is Zoltan's podcast on coaching. In this series, I'm talking with internationally renowned coaching scientists and coaches. We explore their personal and professional insights on the science of coaching and on the helping professions. Are you interested in how they got close to this profession? Are you curious about the new frontiers they are exploring right now? Join me and listen to the conversation. Inspiration and some fun is ahead. My guest today is Carol Kaufman, and I'm really honored to have you on the show today. And I have so many questions because I would really like to know you a lot more. How would you introduce yourself if you would just be coming out from the blue right now with your current self? Okay. Well, I feel like I have many selves. I think my primary identity, what I love doing the most are two things. One is coaching leaders. I really find that to be extremely meaningful, especially leaders who will have a ripple effect, people who will affect their organization. And the second thing I like to do the most is very much related to that. So people ask me sometimes to do big keynotes. What I love are doing small ones just to a team and then the people that report to that team because they can hear the concepts. What concepts? So the other thing I've done recently, as you know, is I wrote the book, Real-Time Leadership, Find Your Winning Moves When the Stakes Are High, with David Noble, published by Harvard Business Review. Then in addition to my private practice, I work two days a week at a search and a leadership advisory firm called Egon Zender, which has given me like wonderful opportunities. So I'd say that's my first identity. I came from being a clinical psychologist, then moved into, um, in clinical psychology, I was a specialist in trauma survivors, multiple trauma survivors. That segued and evolved into peak performance, and that segued into coaching, and that segued into leadership coaching. So that's me in a nutshell. I live outside Boston. I'm married. I've got two children who are grown up who live within a half hour of me. So mm-hmm. that's I think that's in a nutshell. Thank you very much. And I I love that you immediately drew me a journey of how you get to where you are right now. May I ask, what were the things that you are directly bringing from your clinical psychologist background to what you are doing right now? And why I'm asking is that I'm a proud psychologist these days. One of Mm -hmm. my previous guests said that he's a recovering psychologist. So I'm just... Mm -hmm. And how you are with your psychologist background? Uh, there's a few things. One is you get an enormous amount of pattern recognition, and you can tell when somebody's ready to hear something. You know, I think you can really titrate your message well in terms of, okay, the person can hear this much, and then it's like, okay, you need to pause, ask questions. So partly it's the the rhythm of an interaction. And also as a clinical psychologist, you're faced with a labyrinth of choices all the time. For me, what made the transition easier is then becoming very much connected to positive psychology at the end, which is sort of the overarching umbrella. I still am very much supportive of understanding from a psychodynamic point of view, a cognitive point of view, neuropsychology. But I think it's that. And then you can dance when the person also has some challenges and resistances or is sort of um, 
a little bit of a fragile narcissist, what you can do is you don't work on treating the, the issue, but it really helps you able to create a holding environment where they can be their best self and start to explore the things that Prochaska and others would say are things that are in pre-contemplation. I think it helps me the most getting people from pre-contemplation to contemplation, but every now and then being very clear that someone also needs therapy. I don't say me or therapy. I say me and therapy, and I will not be the therapist myself. So many interesting things at the same time. Let me just pick out one of them, which is the most interesting for me. The, the first thing you mentioned was pattern recognition and the sense when to make an intervention, when a certain person, when your client is ready to hear something. Is yeah. there a specific clue what you are looking for? I know this is a big thing, so... But I'm curious, is there a specific clue or do you have a favorite clue that you are working with when timing interventions? I'm not sure I can answer. I'm trying to think right now of someone I'm working with that's very delicate and I have to give this person very tough news because he's very, very clear that he can take over an organization as the CEO And it's very clear if he does, many people will feel very unsafe and quit. And I have to convey this to him. So one thing is know your customer and know that person's cognitive style and how they need to hear things. And for this person who happens to be very data oriented, I have done about 15 or so interviews So people retain a lot of confidentiality, it might be 20 actually, so he can't turn on anyone. But what I'm giving him is, and I also did a quantitative survey of him. So with this person, what I know I'll need to drip feed the results, but for him, he likes primary data and doesn't really trust anybody. He trusts me as much as he trusts anyone, but He wants to, so I basically said to him, do you want primary sources or secondary sources? Do you, and he goes, both. But for primary, what I'm doing is taking hours is I am literally going to give him about, when I'm done, I don't know how many pages, maybe 20 pages of direct quotes. So this is what people say. And then I'll say, and if you see something repeated over and over, I'm not being redundant. It's because a number of people said this. So I'll start out with something sort of general and the positive so he can hear. And then as somebody's talking, you're kind of just weaving back and forth between, as Richard Boyatzis and other people would say, activating their parasympathetic nervous system and the connection with them so that they can hear the next little wave of tough news. And then very often what I'll do is if there's some feedback and I've received the same feedback, I'll say, So listen, I'm going to give you some tough news. And by the way, I received that tough news too. So like chill about it. So let's hear what it says and realize that we can just put this in a development plan. So very matter of fact about it, you know, to hear the news. So I'd say, I'd say it's that in a nutshell, but this one will be one of the trickiest. Thank you for the example. Why I find it very compelling what you are saying is that What I'm hearing is you are working 
around your client, not just in the session itself, but you are giving the, you're making the interviews, you are making the interpretations, you are working with the system around him or her. Yeah. The other thing what I love hearing in your story is the news you are giving confrontation because so many coaches with the psychologist background that I'm working with or, or that I've been in discussions with, they are, they just like to go for the acceptance and holding and let's wait till the client grows out whatever he's facing with and they are a bit reluctant to give the hard news or to confront the client with whatever he needs to be confronted so let's hear that you are the confrontational i wouldn't say type but you are okay with making those hard talks as well right well i just think of it as my job is to tell the truth in a way the person can absorb. And the biggest sin, as it were, is shame. So you do everything possible to help them see the truth of themselves in a way that isn't shaming. So for example, if somebody has a somewhat toxic impact or very dissonant impact on someone, I'll say, listen, you're not really in the club of high level leadership if you haven't had a negative impact on someone. It's just not possible. It's not that you've had the negative impact. It's what do you do with it now? So what can we do so that you're less likely to do that again? And in this person's case, it's really hard because it's a, a major way of being shift we have to help him make. And my actual argument is I don't think he actually wants to be the CEO. He wants to be the idea of the CEO. And I have to figure out how to ask him to fundamentally look at himself to say, is this what you want? And then here's a long job description of what you need to do, who you need to talk to, how you need to relate, the decisions you need to do, the deep dives you need to do, the delegation you need to do. And I think he will find that it's actually boring and he needs to just um, hire a president to do those things. Anyway, so we'll see. But it's but it, the biggest, the, it's like no matter what, better not to confront if the way you're going to confront will bring shame. And it it means you have to be comfortable in the relationship. So it's like what you said, it's acceptance first. Like this person knows I am his advocate, knows he comes first, um, and that I will often say, so let's say my last name is James. Mm -hmm. I'll say, so listen, I have a James O-centric view of the world right now. I am now talking only on your behalf. And my goal is to help you get everything you could and use everything you have to get there. That's the starting point. So there's a lot of correctness in what people are saying about get the acceptance first. But just really check in with yourself. Are you not telling the truth because you're afraid to? And if you don't tell the truth in a way your client can hear, you're not doing your job as a coach. And you can do those powerful question, powerful interventions through questions. Mm -hmm. And also uh, as an offering to say, listen, what I'm hearing is this and this and this and this. Does that make any sense to you? Can you imagine why people say that? You know, what's your thought? You know, so it's like you can you you sort of give a piece of news as your offer and then pivot with a question. And so you keep it a conversation. You know, you sound like a magic mirror to me. That was my I, <laughs> that I was like a what? Like a magic mirror. 
fairy tales when you said that my job is to tell the truth. That's um, a very strong expression <laughs> for me. I, I really yeah. love it. Yeah, I say it's the same Snow White's mirror. Mirror, mirror on the wall. Am I the most beautiful of all? It's like, I can't lie. I can be gentle. I can be strategic. But it's my job. Because when you're powerful, people don't tell you the truth. And no one else is going to tell this person the truth. But you have to care for them more than the than the intensity of your truth, or you don't earn the right to share it. How you get into touch with the research part of your profession? So how come mm-hmm. that you have founded a journal? How come mm-hmm. that you have founded a whole institute for coaching? So let me back up for a second. So what I just said, so most of how theory and research inform me. So what I just said, for example, is, you know, activating the parasympathetic nervous system, et cetera, et cetera. That comes to the work of Richard Boyatzis and the entire set of, of researchers that have come from Case Western Reserve. So that's one. In terms of the quality of the relationship, I'm pulling on high quality relationships, the work of Jane Dutton from the University of, where are they again? Minnesota, I think, um, the Ross School of Business. And then I'm also pulling, you know, so everything is pulling from research. So I speak from the research and it can sound like I'm just like talking, but there's research awareness that um, is informing what I think, you know, and of course, psychological safety from Amy Edmondson. So first thing is the research is integrated into and informed what I do in the moment. So then your question, how did this happen? I'm someone apparently who like gets things done, which is hilarious because I'm so disorganized. You, you don't <clears throat> seem to let me at that. Yeah, I know. I know. You talk to the people who really, really, really know me. I'm always like surfing the wave of chaos and trying not to like fall in. But in around 2006 or something like that, Rich uh, Stephen Palmer from the UK who is involved with the the BPS, the British Psychological Society, he approached me and said, we'd like you to start a journal. To which I said, are you out of your mind? He said, I do not believe so. And to which I then said, doesn't it bother you in the least? I have essentially never edited anything in my life. So how in the world can you say, I need to be the editor, founding editor-in-chief of an academic journal? And he just says, I just know, it's you. It's like, okay, so sure. Though in his case, what I said was, um, listen, I will do this, but I need to have a partner who is organized and informed, et cetera. And that was uh, Tatiana Bakarova. So we started working together and she was wonderful and was my co-editor for two of my three years. But what's more interesting is the big vision Stephen had, which is really brilliant. He was like, we want to professionalize the field of coaching, something, of course, you are incredibly passionate about. Okay, so how do we do that? All right. So part of that was the Institute of Coaching is having an organization connected to a very prestigious university. So that's number one. Number two is the Institute, for example, is the brainchild, unlikely person, a journalist, news anchor, billionaire, philanthropist, coach who had the vision, the field of coaching 
needed a firm research base for it to be professionalized. So that was Ruth Ann Harnish's vision. So first you got Stephen Palmer and his vision is, okay, then if we want to professionalize coaching and we want professional coach as we need the research, but then we need somewhere for them to publish their research. So we have to start a journal. They have somewhere to publish, so it will help their professional development and help them get professorships. So apparently, I mean, none of these ideas were mine. <laughs> they were just ideas that when they told me, I'm like, yeah, I really get that. I'll help. And then within, I'll really get that. It'll help. And then more who is basically, she's currently the chair of the Institute. She, so I met these Margaret um, Ruth Ann in 2004, when I presented a a keynote at at ICF. And Margaret Moore is the one who said, Carol, coaching is an academic home and you need to provide it. To which I said, no, (laughs) I'm too busy. And she did it again six months later. I said, no, then six months later. And I said, yes, but I'm going to create then the Institute I want, not the one that you want. Because she was really a health and wellness and I'm really positive psychology and leadership coaching. So we put them all together and we started the annual conference at Harvard Medical School. This year, this coming year, 2024, will be in May in Boston. It's called Coaching, colon, oh no, Coaching in Leadership and Healthcare from Harvard Medical School. None of these ideas were mine. I was just very receptive. And when I see the truth, I get it. So I didn't create it, but I was the person who got excited about it and made it happen. That's a very important role in the life of any idea, I would say. Dead ideas are the the proof. You always credit me with it. You're like, you don't understand. I didn't start any of this myself. The boulder was moving and then I got behind the boulder and started pushing. But that's that's a super important role. And I think sometimes that's what we are missing in our community. You know, I'm just making a bold judgment that yeah. sometimes the networks are not aligned properly. But when things or when people can start to work together and have the common vision, I think we can do wonderful things. I'm just happy that you were in these wonderful moments and you are still around these. And mm-hmm. the world gets moved on and on. So and speaking of research and being an editor of a journal, do you have a favorite piece? Is there something that you are always happy to remember? Or was there something that was very inspiring for you that you were like, okay, this is something that everyone has to be reading? Oh, that has to be Richard Boyatzis and his work um, at Case Western Reserve. And he's the one who really, he really got it right. And he was able to support it with very good neuropsychological research with um, Angela Passarelli, who's currently the director of research at the Institute. And that is his work, um, basically the parasympathetic nervous system. And he does things like, you'll have two kinds of coaches. You will have the kind of, he calls it compassionate coaching, which I think is not the right description, but it's coaching that leads with the vision and who do you want to be really has you build up your intention. Who do I really want to be? And then how to create a learning journey around it, but also help the person feel acknowledged, accepted, et cetera, first. Then, so that was one kind of coaching. The other kind of coaching was very kind of more effective checklist. You know, so were you able to do this? Okay, that's very good. 
Um, were you able to do that? What got in the way? What could you do? Okay, how can I help? But here one is like, who do you want to be? The other is, okay, let's go through this. How can I help? Then he put people who had those different kinds of coaches in an fMRI machine. Okay, so there you are in a machine. You hear the voice of either what Richard calls the compassionate coach, which I would call more the future or the spirit of coaching, right? And then they'd see what happened to the brain. They would put the voice of the other coach, the more matter of fact, not mean, not demanding, none of that, not bad, just more like your more normal supportive management coaching conversation. And that activated a completely different part of the brain. So the reward center got activated and visual association cortex, actually, the whole visioning part got activated with the intentional change theory-based coach. And the threat centers got activated with the other coach who was a very nice coach. But it's like, were you able to get this done? Were you able to get this done? What got in your way? What would so leading with the problem, not leading with the vision. I'd say that's the single piece of research from Richard Boyatzis, David Cooperrider with Appreciative Inquiry, and Angela Passarelli, who is the Carol Kaufman of that group, because she made it all happen. Um, she did all the interviews. She did all the all that work. So I would say if I had to pick one thinker, one theory, and then the work of Jane Dutton and Kim Cameron, you know, Cooper Ryder, Marty Seligman, all that for me falls under and is connected with Richard Boyatzis and his work as the as the umbrella. Thank you very much. I'm always surprised when we can see brain level evidence which is kind of the hardest evidence that you can find for any psychological intervention. I'm always fascinated when we can see those kind of outcomes. Let me share another thing that Richard Bayatz has found that will be very relevant to any coach listening to this, which is really fascinating. It's an old paper that he wrote. Gosh, I can't remember the name of it exactly. I can send it to you. I think it's called Compassionate Coaching, but it was in the um, Academy of Management magazine. Very hard to get into that publication. And it won the award for like the best publication of the year. What it was, was they had, they looked the role of coaching, of CEOs coaching, not looking at the impact on the person being coached, but the impact on the coach. Mm -hmm. So basically, in a nutshell, coaching is good for you when you're the coach. And so I included that when it's very preliminary research. Preliminary isn't super basic and not, not that great because it was studying after. It was a project I did with Carrie Palomara at Massachusetts General Hospital when we trained about, gosh, I don't even remember how many, 100 maybe, um, senior faculty in a coach approach and particularly in a positive psychology coach approach. The people started studying it kind of after the fact, so it's all post hoc or whatever. That said, they still found that the positive psychology-based coaching increased work engagement and it decreased sort of burnout of the all the medical residents. It was required that every single internal medicine re resident had to have a coach. And by the way, never went in their own food chain. So if I was in cardiology, I would have a coach from gastroenterology, something so I could really talk to that person and it would not affect my career development. No one I'd ever get a letter of recommendation from. Okay. They only had like four sessions a year, but then what they found out is the coaches 
also had less burnout because this was happening right when everything was pivoting with the electronic medical record and everybody was getting their sky, their Maslach scores were like through the roof for stress and burnout. And our group of faculty did not get better, but unlike the rest of the profession, their stress level didn't change and everybody else's shot up. And it was partly because, again, when you're coaching, it's activating your own best self and your own best self and getting to be your own best self is your own resource. So anybody who's coaching, your coaching is actually helping you. And I, I once had a conversation. So Marty Seligman is the father of positive psychology and he and I were buddies for a long time. And I remember talking to him once early on somewhere like 2005, four, whatever. And I'm saying, you know, Marty, are you noticing that now that we're really into positive psychology, you're getting sick less often? And he's like, yes, we're all feeling a lot, getting a lot healthier. We're getting fewer colds. But then there was a whole bunch of research that flowed from that idea with Barbara Fredrickson and Richard Davies and others who look at the, I'm going to get this wrong, vagal nerve and how and inflammation and epigenetics and all this stuff that's connected with helping yourself have more positive experience. And notice I say helping yourself have more positive experience, which I think is harvesting and noticing the positive experience you are having and then seeing ways to increase it. So it's, anyway, so that's sort of what's in my brain when I'm approaching something. Thank you very much for sharing this. I have to tell you that my next question would have been, are there any hidden gems in your (laughs) repository that that you would say that not a lot of us are aware of. And yeah. well, this was one of them. It, it really got me thinking. Oh, good. It's, and I'm like, okay, well, let's do some further research on this. And, just and go into Google that. Scholar. Go into Google Scholar and just put in Richard Boyatzis and Angela Passarelli, et cetera. If you put in Marty Seligman, you'll get 2,000 references. Like, wow, I rarely get to speak to someone who really knows stuff at such a level that you can quote immediately and I'm flattered honestly so So a lot of it I got really through my work with the Institute of Coaching it made me be current because it's really hard to be current without it and at the moment even I think I'm not as current as I could be however I will say we had Stephen Hayes at our recent um, Institute of Coaching conference and he's doing some research that literally blew my brain you can't stop me from asking, what was it? I know, I know. I'm trying to find it. I have the article open somewhere on my computer. Basically, I'm going to look for it while we're talking to see if I can find it. He did some research. And if I understood him correctly, it took 50 researchers three years to go through 53 thousand social science research studies to look in in search of the mediator variables. So mediator variables, in this case, imagine a box in front of you and arrows coming in, the kind of treatment you received, et cetera. And then the hours going out being, you know, were you healthier or not healthier, et cetera. And then what is it that makes this happen? So what is it enables you and it empowers you? It turned out at the end of the day, to be what they call psychological flexibility. 
And this actually is the real inspiration behind real-time leadership, which is all about how do you create a space between stimulus and response? And in that space is your freedom to choose. And that is psychological flexibility. They eventually found nearly 300 of those studies were of high enough quality and looked at mediator variables. But it was really very compelling. I think it turned out to be like 94 of all of the variables that mediated health, et cetera, could come down to psychological flexibility in a meaningful way. So I'll tell you the name of the article. And you're like, we just want to like kill yourself on the spot. Um, it's called, uh, it's in behavioral research and therapy. I think from June, 2022 or something. Um, it's called Evolving an Idiomic, which approach to processes of change, colon, towards a unified, personalized science of human improvement. OMG. But it basically means the search for the variable that helps people change, which is psychological flexibility. His presentation was virtual this year, is on the Institute of Coaching website if you go into events and look for conferences. Now, I think you have to be a member to access it. I'm not sure. Uh, there's a lot of stuff you don't have to be a member to access, but membership is like 12 bucks a month or something. Now that I've stepped out of my active role at the Institute, it's my source. Like for me, that's where I go now to make it so that I'm always sort of even fuzzily aware of the research and its applications as I go forward. It's sort of the it's sort of the lazy way to learn stuff. That's how I was like, I just am there and I can learn it as opposed to if you want to get on top of things and you look at this whole world, it's like, okay, how do I find what's most relevant? We need curated sources. I mean, you know, obviously, yeah. and obviously EMCC does the same thing. I'm just less familiar, but we have a few thousand articles. So anyway, that's the way I do it. The easy did this thing, but that's the, this study is really hard to understand, but that's what it comes down to. Social flexibility, psychological flexibility, personal flexibility, physical flexibility in terms of mindfulness and all that. And that that is where when David Noble and I worked on the book. Let me interrupt you for a second. I just want to make a link back to your previous guest I had because psychological flexibility you are mentioning, it, it really resonates with the work of Eric Dehan. Because and, and in his research around the active ingredients of coaching, he he was talking about the predispositions of the coachee and how they are approaching the whole coaching situation. So we could go back there as well. And and what I'm yeah. really interested in, we've already started to say I just put a signpost here, how this research informed your book. Because I read a lot about it. I haven't finished it. I have to confess I'm just halfway through the book. I well, promise. you have the model then, the MOVE. You've probably read yes. most of MOVE. You just haven't read how it applies to first-time leadership, disruptive leadership, and all that. Yeah, so for me, it's it's a great read. And I'm just curious, how, how did you get to put together the MOVE concept? How was it informed? Was it informed more by your coaching background or more by your experiences around leadership and the leadership literature? So how did the whole concept emerge? It started when David Noble and I were standing in front of a whiteboard in 2017, trying to figure out 
what were we doing that was making these CEOs become more effective because they were already high performers to begin with? And we started about thinking about what are the frameworks we use? What are the coaching models that we use? And then we filled up the board with at least a hundred of them and different approaches. And then we started triaging them to see, do they hang together in any way? David's the one who came up with the first four buckets. So it's M-O-V-E, acronym so people can remember it. Um, It's all about creating that space for choice. So I'll run through them in a nutshell. M is to be mindfully alert. So mindful, we understand, you know, centered, not prejudging, but not in a meditative way, in a very alert way, like an athlete. A core athlete has to be in a flow state. Leaders have to be in a slow state, in a flow state, be able to process what's coming at them and then figure out what to do. What they do is pay attention to the three dimensions of leadership, which are in a nutshell, what do I need to do? Like, what do I really need to do? What matters? Who do I need to be? And have I done enough emotion regulation uh, to be emotionally flexible enough so that I can do that? And then how do I need to relate? So that's the M, to be mindfully alert. O is to be an options generator. That's based on the work of Rick Snyder, Shane Lopez, and all of the work there. They call it hope theory, but it is actually flexibility in terms of for any challenge you're facing to have at least four pathways forward. They say six, but our leaders find that overwhelming. So we say four. And the way I put that together is we have four sets of reflexes. Okay, so our default and the whole point of making space is to be able to overcome your reflexes. So how do you choose what to do? So we took fight, flight, freeze, and befriend and translated into stances like a tennis player. You put your legs one way for a forehand, another way for backhand. Not that I play tennis, but one stance is do you lean in? Like when something comes at you, do you lean in and really engage in action first? Um, It can be action with enthusiasm, action with an edge, but really active. Do you lean in? Then do you alternatively, are you able to lean back and go with the data and inquire and look at the overview, really be very reasoned and logical in your choice of what to do next? Mm -hmm. Then the third one is lean with. So it's lean in, lean back, lean with, or don't lean. So lean with is nurturance, caring, but in the way the other person can receive. Some people like an extroverted approach, other people like introverted, but how do people feel cared about? And then all of these operate at scale. So like if we were talking about a a merger and acquisition, do you lean in and aggressively go after the property? Do you lean back and really do your due diligence? Do you lean with and really worry about culture and how people will integrate? So all of these concepts work at scale. And then the other one is the hardest, which is don't lean. Can something get thrown of you? I'm surprised to see that, but I'm positively surprised. Yeah. So don't lean. The capacity, like when something heats up for you to say to yourself, don't lean. Like, you know, okay, like Zeltan, don't lean. Just let it be for a minute, you know, and it could be you meditate on something for a while. It could be you just wait. It could be just a couple minutes, but what it is, is the others lean in, lean with, um, they're when you're like producing thoughts. If you can get yourself to a place to say, don't lean, you can then encourage 
intuition and things to come to you, which is often the aha experience. And for example, coaches are great at that. Even like, you know, as John Whitmore once literally asked me, if you knew the answer, what would it be? And something popped into my mind that stunned me, giving ourselves space. So that's the thought in the shower, the running, but it's creating that on purpose during your day by not just say, don't lean. So mindfully alert, mindful, but in the flow, options generator. Then V is for vantage point. Like, are you really seeing what's out there? Your point of view, is it right? How can you know it's right? How can you know it's maybe wrong? What does a 10 out of 10 look like on a good vantage point? And then I have a whole checklist of things for people to to do that either for themselves when you're a leader or when you're a coach, trying to get a way to articulate the person's, their vantage point is just like off. And what is it? You know, are they nearsighted, farsighted, too detailed, not too detailed, unconscious bias, et cetera, et cetera. Zoom up, zoom in. And that's like your vantage point because the person who has the clearest advantage point first has the commercial advantage. And then E is to engage and affect change. The part we focus in on that is one, obviously safe psychological environment, but the other one is being really available and aware of your signals. Or as you even said a keyword earlier was signposting. How can a leader signpost? We're having a conversation here. It's a brainstorm. You're not supposed to do anything yet. Okay, we're having a meeting. When we're done, I'm going to decide. We're having a meeting. When we're done, you're going to decide. Just sort of to signpost what's this meaning. And then really appreciating, and you can never appreciate, as it were, this enough, that the signals you emit may not be the signals you that are received. So I'm coaching this lovely CEO, like, oh my goodness, you could just like take him home to dinner. And he has a joke that he makes, he uses on himself. It's like, oh, this is really important. If I don't get this right, like I'm dead. And so he said to somebody who was presenting, he goes, this is really important. So you better get it right or you're dead. It was a joke. Okay. The signal, this person was terrified that if he didn't get this right, he was going to get fired. The signal you give can often not be the signal that is heard. And so for engaging and affecting change, that in delegation. So we've got mindfully alert, and mm-hmm. that is based on all kinds of, of research, but it also is based on business strategy and military strategy, which are David's strong points. We've got that mindfully alert, be an options generator, you know your vantage point, and engage and affect change. And who has time these days? So what it is, is each one of those translates into a split second question you can ask yourself. You go into a meeting. Okay, what really needs to get done? And something may come to you. Who do I need to be? How do I need to relate? Okay, do I lean in, lean back, lean with, don't lean? Am I seeing clearly nearsighted, farsighted, detailed, not detailed? And E, am I engaging change? Am I sending out the right signals? So each one of those for a busy leader, because I say, get the ideas, because you have to change in no extra time because you don't have it, but you can do it. So one last story for who do you want to be right now? working with the CEO. This was during COVID and she had like 16 Zoom calls. And so I challenged her as I challenged, by the way, anybody hearing my voice right now, this is your challenge, Zoltan, this is your challenge, which is for the next two days or even two hours, but ideally the next couple of days and before every interaction, ask yourself, who do I want to be right now? Marshall Goldsmith, by the way, went ape over this. It's in his book. He's written articles about it himself, crediting me happily. He calls it the Carol Kaufman question. Who do you want to be right now? 
So she trained herself. And this is, by the way, a half second intervention. You're about to start a meeting and you just ask yourself, who do I want to be right now? Okay. It takes a second, not a half second. But when she did, the thought hit her at her 16th meeting, wait a minute, the least important meeting of my day is the most important meeting of theirs. And then a very different CEO showed up. So that is the model in a nutshell. And it is also based on all the theories informed by all of the theories we talked about today. Thank you very much. And I think you even answered my final question. Is there a simple trick that people could learn that could bring them to this decision space? Because what I say is that people are just running through their days and they don't even stop for the second to answer Mm -hmm. these questions. So is there a way that you would teach people how to snap out from this rushing routine they are in? Well, I think knowing that literally a two-second pause can shift your brain. You know, like after an email, you know, the tumble waterfall of emails, after maybe two or three, just stop for 10 seconds. Research shows that if you do that, the default system of your brain will reset. So knowing that these tiny breaks are absolutely crucial for peak performance and will change how you can operate. Or as I say, some people say, oh, take a break. And they're like, take a break. And I go, no, take a break for neurological optimization. So if you realize this is important, give yourself a space, two seconds, 10 seconds. Can you do that and make a space so that you can have a, a different choice? And it doesn't have to be based on move, but move is made for that model. But in anything, like, wait, what do I really need to do here? And have something in front of you, a little post-it or something. Um, one of my clients, I gave him a little hourglass. And it was just like between big meetings, just like a minute hourglass. He would just flip it over and stare at the hourglass. Be one minute. Just one minute. Because our brains work really fast. You know, like we can tell if we're in a dangerous situation, I think, in 3,000 milliseconds. And it takes something like 500 milliseconds for it to hit you cognitively. So if you can just make a tiny space, it can make a difference. Excellent advice. Thank you very much for being with me today. I really appreciate your time and all the insights and everything that you have shared with us. Thank you very much again. Thank you. This is great. I'm glad you found me. Thank you for listening to On Coaching Podcast where I have curious conversations with world-renowned coaches and researchers. If you enjoyed this episode, make sure to rate us and subscribe. I also invite you to visit zoltanchigash.com, where you can access more resources regarding the coaching industry. Be well.